Welcome to part two of the podcast on Wilfred Rhodes with his biographer, Patrick Faraday. My name is Tom Ford. Be sure to listen to part one, focusing on Wilfred's early life in Yorkshire, his bowling technique and relationship with the cricket hierarchy. One of the most famous episodes involving Wilfred was the test match against Australia in 1902 at the Oval a match which is known today as Jessup's match because of Gilbert Jessup's blistering century in 76 balls in the final innings. With one wicket remaining and 15 runs to win, England batsman George Hurst and Wilfred Rhodes successfully chased down the target. Hurst has long been credited with saying to Rhodes, we'll get him in singles, Wilfred. Once and for all, Patrick, did this exchange actually happen? Once and for all, it didn't. Right. <laughs> um, I, 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 whatever I say, it'll, it'll carry on being said that yeah. that's what was. Um, I've got it from um, George Hurst said it was never said. Um, in fact, I'm opening the page on the book. Will Wilfred, I think, said, well, of course he didn't say that. It would have been daft because if you can hit the ball for four, then you're going to. Yes, um, makes sense. Also, the little thing is they didn't get them in singles. The score, the the, the the scoring record will show that they didn't get them in singles. There was a four in their partnership and a couple of twos. Um, it was, um, I think, Wilfred said it was some it was some press man's invention. Um, and I did I did find a poem from the period because I I'm I'm now looking at the book and I'm going to quote from it. So I, I've I've I put the question: Where did this myth originate? You'll see, I've, I'm already calling it a myth. Mm. Um, there was a, writ, a poem written at the time, which says, "15 to win as Rhodes strode to the wicket." Said George Hurst, "Come, do as their bid. Let's get him in singles, safe cricket, and get them." They certainly did. Mm. Well, yep. Yeah. Okay, I mean that that may be the um, that. That may be where it comes from. Um, it didn't happen, um, but I'm going to quote something else because this this is this is one of one of my favourites in the whole in the whole book. Really, um, it was um, a chap called AG AC Denham asked the pair of them about um, what had happened on the, on that famous day, and uh, AC Denham reports um, that. Well, I'll quote him. I asked George if he was uh, nervous at the uh, Oval. Nervous? No, I can't say that I was nervous. But now you come to mention it, I remember I was a bit afraid lest the occasion might be too big for Wilfred. And then Denham posed the same question to Wilfred. Um, Wilfred replied, nervous. No, I wasn't nervous. Not exactly what you might call nervous. But I must say, I did feel anxious lest George get out. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Good answer. Yeah, it, it, it's a complete myth, and I've no doubt that that myth will will continue forevermore. But but it is a myth, and it and it's not true. It's probably why cricket reporting today doesn't take the form of poetry. Yeah, <laughs> for good reason. Um, yeah. What's remarkable? I mean, there are many remarkable things about Wilfred's career, but possibly. The most remarkable thing is that at some point he transitioned 
from an internationally successful spin bowler into a record-breaking test opening batsman. How does a regular number 11, such as Wilfred, suddenly emerge as a successful opening batsman? He was always pretty good with a bat. Even in his first season, he would get 20s and 30s batting at 11. Um, As you probably know, um, on his first tour of Australia, he was still batting at 11. Um, But he he and Ari Foster um, set the record 10th wicket partnership Mm. um, for England. I think Wilfred got 40 or 50 not out, supporting Foster. Um, He was pretty handy with a bat. Um, he really enjoyed batting. I mean, he said that himself. He he kind of preferred batting to bowling. Um, I think by 1905, 1906, he was, he was up to sort of number six in the Yorkshire order, but he was still their premier bowler. But within a couple of years, because of various retirements and so forth, um, Yorkshire didn't have an opening batsman, um, but they still did have a good bowling attack. And Wilfred basically put himself forward and said, I'm, I'm, I can be an opening bat and I can still bowl if you need me. Um, and he went to the top of the order for Yorkshire, um, became their opening batsman. Uh, he, was, he wasn't he was Stanley Jackson or Fry or he was a, um, he could, he could, could could score fast runs when he needed to, but he was very very effective. I don't think I don't think he was one of the prettiest batsmen ever to play the game, um, but he was very very effective, and he was so effective that um, England um, came calling. Um, they didn't have a partner for Jack Hobbs, and as soon as Rhodes started opening the batting for England, which I think the first time he did it was on a tour of South Africa in. 1909, 10, 8, 9, um, around then, anyway. Um, and he was put together with Jack Hobbs, and they um, put on 200 in two successive matches, I think it was. Um, and also what the two of them had was a remarkable um, understanding of running between the wickets. Um, a real complete trust in one another's judgment Um and it drove the, certainly in that series, drove the South Africans absolutely mad. Um, and yeah, drove them to distraction. This kind of um, running without calling, just quick singles, left, right and centre, um, which were based on the pair of them being obviously quick between the wickets, but complete trust of one another. Um, if one went, the other went. No questions asked. Hmm. Um and once that partnership had been established, well, apart from Wilfred being very successful himself, anybody who was going to support Jack Hobbs and was going to be Jack Hobbs' favoured partner, um, you would be very inclined to do what Jack Hobbs wanted because he was so much, at that stage, the best batsman in the world, I think, without... I think Victor Trumper was slightly in decline by then, so, yeah, Hobbs was certainly the best batsman in the world. Um and Rhodes was the perfect foil for him. Um, I think going back to what I was referring to earlier about um, about his career, about his financial security, I think he saw that um, it was more likely that even if he even if he lost his spinning finger or his ability to spin or whatever, then he could make a he could make a decent living as a batsman. Um, plus. 
he did like being on the field. He did like being involved in everything. Um, I think possibly being an opening batsman taught him stuff about what other bowlers do. Um, And he would have learned from that. I I just think Wilfred learned from everything. Absolutely everything. Um, And, but he, but he did enjoy it as well. Um, But certainly he was doing to some degree what the County needed. He became, you know, he became that batsman because the county needed an opening bat. And then you could go on to after the First World War when the county had good batting and their bowling was weak, and he went back to his bowling. Now, you mentioned Jack Hobbs in that answer. Um, History largely associates Jack Hobbs with his great partner, Herbert Sutcliffe. But prior to the First World War, as you just touched on, I think for about six seasons, his test opening partner was Wilfred Rhodes. Um, Mm -hmm. I think you make the point, very uh, excellent point in your book, that statistically the Rhodes partnership was just as good, if not better, than the Sutcliffe partnership. Why do you think history has largely forgotten this? Um, Well, I think think the the Hobbs-Sutcliffe partnership has... um, does have more redolence in the sense that it was more equal. Um, I think you could certainly say that, <laughs> ridiculously enough, that Hobbs, well, Hobbs said it himself, so it's not ridiculous. He wasn't the batsman after the First World War that he was before the First World War. Um, having said that, he did score about <laughs> 45,000 runs after the First World War and was opening England's batting for 10 years. So God knows what he was like before the First World War. But um, he was a much more attacking batsman the First World War, uh, before the First World War. Um, he wasn't Trumper, but he, he, he wasn't far off. Um, and after the First War, he became more sedate, let's say. Um, and he and Sutcliffe really were almost equals, I would say, during the 20s. Um, the greatest innings, I think, of, of, the, of the 20s um, were, came from Sutcliffe rather than Hobbs. Hmm. Um, Hobbs was probably the better bat, well, was the better batsman, but Sutcliffe was brilliant in his own way. Hobbs um, Rhodes would never have claimed to any brilliance. I, I think he was as, he was the supporter. He was the foil for Hobbs, um, but he could get centuries and big centuries too, um, as he did in that South African series I mentioned. Um, then later the Australian series of 1911-12, where um, Hobbs and Rhodes broke the record for the first wicket partnership. Um, then in the Triangular Series in England in 1912. Um, I don't know. Yeah, Hobbs and Sutcliffe, they are just names that go together um, somehow as the the greatest opening partnership maybe that England have ever had. Um, Sutcliffe did average, what, 55 in tests or something, something mm-hmm. like that. I mean, he was a great batsman in his own right. And if you're talking about opening pairs, you like both of them to be good. Um, and w- Wilfred was good, but he he certainly wasn't in anything like the class of Hobbs, and and he knew it, and he said it.
Patrick, there's a line in your book which is seemingly a throwaway line, but in all my years of reading cricket literature, it really made me sit up and think, and that is about um, cricketers of the golden age, and we're talking about Wilfred's first tour to Australia in 1903-04, didn't wear sunglasses. Um, it's mm-hmm. such an innocuous statement, but it's actually quite profound. Um for a cricketer such as Wilfred coming from an overcast part of England, it must have been quite a shock to the system to be spending hour after hour under the blistering Australian sun. Do you think this may have affected uh, Wilfred's blindness? We know he spent the last few decades of his life blind. Do you think this may have affected it? Um, I, I think that's a theory that's been posited before. I'm not an expert on glaucoma, which and it was untreated glaucoma that did cause his blindness. I I wouldn't have thought so. Um, there were lots of other cricketers went over to Australia. I mean, Wilfred did go four times, hmm. but I mean, if that's the case, then wouldn't that have applied to Australian players who played there all the time and didn't wear sunglasses, um, or may, maybe they grew up more accustomed to it, so possibly it wouldn't have affected them as badly. I know Wilfred did talk about the the glare and the and the the heaviness of the air, which I'm um, going back to what you we, when we were talking about his bowling, he did change his bowling for the Australian series of 0304. He he just said, I realized I needed to bowl a bit quicker. Hmm. And he never really was able, he said he was never really able to get back to his English style after that Australian tour. He, he found that, that that somehow became implanted in him and he did bowl a bit quicker. And he thought that took away from his mm. his skill as a spin bowler very slightly. Um, I, can't, I can't say in terms of his eye condition that that wasn't a factor. Um, personally, I, do, I, I, I think it's unlikely, but I'm, I'm not an eye doctor. Tell us about Wilfred's domestic life. In his various correspondence and interviews, does he mention his wife Sarah or give any insight into his world outside of cricket? Uh, no. Wow. <laughs> it's the short answer to that. Um, no, he was very, very private. Um, barely mentions his wife. Um, I think she comes into it once or twice. Um, he had, uh, they had. Uh, one daughter, um, Margaret Garton's mother, um, who was a wonder. Um, he absolutely doted on his daughter, um, and she was a profound influence. Well, um, she and her mother, Wilfred's wife, were profound influences on his career. Um, but he didn't talk about them. Um, he did consent to have his photograph taken with them a couple of times. I think. On their wedding and uh, their twenty fifth wedding anniversary, there are a couple of photos of them together, and then on his fiftieth birthday, there is a family group. Um, but by and large, no, no, he um, he wasn't really interested in the press. He wasn't. He, he recognised that interviews were necessary, and those were the, these were the days where he would come back from. I don't know. A, a, for example, I've got one where. He comes back from a tour of Australia, arrives home at three in the morning, having got the night train from London, 
and there's a couple of Yorkshire Post um, journalists knocking on his door at nine o'clock in the morning, asking asking how how things went, mm-hmm. and 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 I, I think he was pretty polite. He was pretty polite as long as they knew their stuff. What he what he struggled with, I think, were people asking him about cricket who didn't really know about cricket. Mm. He, he could get a bit gruff and bad tempered with them, but. Yeah, his his domestic life. I I mean, his wife Sarah was a huge support to him. Um, if you think about just the the travails of an English cricket season, where he's he was probably out on the road quite often from Monday to Saturday, come home on Saturday night, maybe dump a load of dirty washing, have a nice roast, um, have a decent kip, and then off again on Monday morning, mm. um, and that would go on from end of April to middle of September. And then possibly, um, well, as was the case in many winters, then he'd be off again in mid-November to Australia, South Africa, and then latterly India. Um, yeah, a really, a really tough, tough life for his his wife. Um, uh, he, he would have to sort out, for example, finances that if he went on a tour to Australia or South Africa, he had to make sure that she had enough money for the winter um, because he wouldn't be paid till the end of the tour. That's interesting. So, you know, just just little things like that. Hmm. Um, I think uh, once they got to the 1920s, I think her life was a lot easier. He was earning more money and um, her daughter was at home as well. So she wasn't so on her own. Um, but in going back to your original question, he talked very, very little about it. I think he quite simply thought this is nobody's business but mine. While this podcast is, of course, concentrated on cricketers from the Golden Age, that is those prior to the First World War, Wilfred's career continued for 13 more seasons after the war ended. In short, how did Wilfred's cricket change after the war and how significant were his contributions on the international stage? Well, once um, cricket restarted, I think we mentioned this earlier. There was a certainly a, a, a lack of um, a lack of talent in English cricket. I mean, they'd had a four-year hiatus. Um, some cricketers didn't come back at all. Um, a lot of cricketers were not the same as they had been before the first war. I mean, I could, any number of it, George Hurst, for example, um, was not the player uh, in 1919 that he had been in 1914. Not surprisingly, he was, he was older than Wilfred. Mm. Um, and Wilfred basically, as I said earlier, um, he, he went back to bowling because Yorkshire needed bowlers, not batsmen. Um, and, um he picked up his spin bowling again and proceeded i think he topped the averages i think in 1920 21 22 23 and 24 i think five years in a row he topped the english averages so you know for a man who was now in his early 40s um he was the best spin bowler in the country by 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 that measure uh, i think by any measure actually hmm. um in terms of International, oh, oh, and incidentally, Yorkshire won four championships in a row, mm. <laughs> which had a lot to do with his bowling. Um, in terms of international cricket, um, he went to Australia for the first tour after the first war, 1920 21. Um, he didn't do well. Um, 
they didn't really I don't I don't think I don't think Johnny Douglas the captain quite knew what to do with him um he he, he wasn't he wasn't an opening batsman anymore um he didn't spin the ball enough um he'd certainly lost some of his some of his bowling ability and I think what Rhodes said is basically I could I could knock people over in English cricket I had the conditions that I that suited me but also there were a lot of bad batsmen around um, when he got to Australia, the conditions weren't right, and there were a lot of good batsmen around. Mm. Um, and um, the tour was a bit of a disaster. Well, it was a disaster for the whole team. I mean, as you know, Australia completely thumped um, England 5-0. Mm-hmm. Um, and Wilfred didn't do particularly well, but nor did anybody else, except I, th- I seem to remember Jack Hobbs did do pretty well, but nobody else did. Um, and then there was a... which feeds into what came later there was an incident um when they were coming back that um the the manager of the team was a man called frederick toon who was also the um a big wig in yorkshire cricket he um said wilfred's finished uh, he said this to another yorkshire player which was a little bit inappropriate and quite stupid um and it was reported back to wilfred and i think probably wilfred would have thought i'll show him um, but in terms of international cricket, yeah, that was that was perceived to be the end, um, and he wasn't considered for selection. And as far as I remember, he pretty much said, "I'm, you know, I'm carrying on for Yorkshire now. Um, mm. You know, Yorkshire's Yorkshire's where I'm going to play cricket. Um, five uh, five day tests or test match, test cricket is is not for the likes of me. It's you know, it's a young man's game or well, young man and Jack Hobbs's game." Um, um, he did come back to Test Cricket Um, you've referred to going on the West Indies tour but he did come back another time for the last uh, you know this but maybe some of your listeners don't Mm. he came back for one test in the 1926 Ashes series Um, it was quite a big Mm. test because um, um, after four tests the the score was nil-nil so this was the deciding test it was going to be played to a finish because it was a deciding test. That was the the um, MCC rules that if if um, they were level pegging after four tests, so they would play to a finish. And England had tried a number of spinners over the summer. Roy Kilner, particularly, um, they um, summoned Wilfred. Wilfred was a selector. He was one of two professional players who'd been co-opted onto the selection committee. He and Jack Hobbs. And um, Wilfred went down to the selection meeting. Interestingly enough, um, it was during the general strike. So he had to drive down to London. Um, Mm. He drove from his Yorkshire home. He stopped in Leicester where his um, daughter lived and his wife was in Leicester as well. And they both spoke to him as he stopped overnight um, and said, you know, they are going to ask you to play. And Wilfred said, yeah, I've got a feeling they are. I mean, I'm, obviously I'm I'm paraphrasing here, um, but I don't really want to because I'm worried I'll let everybody else down. I'm 46 now or something. My fielding's not very good, da, 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 da. But uh, he, got, he, got down to the, he got down to the selection meeting and of course they did ask him to play and said, you know, you're still the best spinner in the country. And mm. he acquiesced and agreed to play. Um, and play did, play did, and um, England were. I, 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 
England were lucky with the with the weather. Um, things worked out pretty well for them. Um, and the the crucial element, really, of the game, I suppose, was an amazing opening partnership of Hobson Sutcliffe, who we referred to earlier, score, um, putting on two hundred on a wet wicket, um, which was quite quite a remarkable achievement. But um, Wilfred did bowl, and didn't he just bowl? Um, he got. Now I'm going to have to go back to what his figures were, and I, I, I'm going to insist on reading it. Reading a quote. Um, he took two for 35 off 25 overs in the first innings. And the two batsmen he got out were Woodfull and Richardson, mm-hmm. which is um, not a bad pair. And then in the second innings, he took four for 44. And he got out Bardsley, Ponsford, Collins and Richardson. Mm. So uh, he, he got some decent players out. Yeah. Um, and England went on for this famous, I suppose, any Ashes triumph is famous, but this one particularly was because it was the first one after the First World War. It had huge redolence over the country. I mean, I would, I would certainly say there was probably no Test match that had ever been um, weighted with such anticipation throughout the country. Mm. Um, it was in the, you know, coming in the summer of a general strike. It was an escapism, and there was this feeling of. England cricket is finally getting back on its feet and not being bashed around by the dirty Aussies and, and all this kind of business. And um, they did it and they did it. And Hobbs and Sutcliffe particularly, but also Larwood and and the great Wilfred. Um, I call him the great Wilfred. I can't help myself. Sorry. Um, <laughs> That's fine. But I, but I will. There's just one quote I would like to read. Um, mm-hmm. And this was from, um, it's a quote from Harold Larwood. Um, and he was interviewed by a wonderful journalist called Frank Keating. Um, and Keating asked Larwood about this final, final test match. Um, and this is what Larwood had to say. Um, he just said, Rhodes was pure genius. I got Woodfall for a duck. And after a bit, Rhodes came on. Now, when he came on, this is me interjecting, when he came on, Bill Ponsford was batting. Now, for anybody who doesn't know about Bill Ponsford, um, he was he's very much known as the obdurate run machine, um, less so than Bradman. But um, but he was also, um, his most famous vicious shot was his square cut. Um, so um, this is going back to Larwood. That Ponsford was a vicious cutter of the ball. Vicious. I was at point, but Rhodes keeps signalling me closer to the bat, still fetching me up till I'm almost standing on Ponsford's crease. Sure, I'm a bit scared. Rhodes comes up just two paces from behind the umpire, but he stops dead and stares at me. I'd involuntarily taken a pace back from Ponsford's crease. He fetches me in again. First ball nips through and smacks into Strudwick's gloves. Second ball breaks back and Ponsford, surprised, pops it up and I jump across and catch it left-handed. Rhodes walks down the pitch to me and says softly, you can go back a bit now, Sonny. We got him. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, I, I, I mean, I, I just love the idea of Harold Arwood being told to stand a yard and a half from Ponsford's bat. <laughs> and Wilfred knew exactly what he was doing. Yeah. And then you can go back now, Sonny. We got him. I love it. 
Great story. Um, gorgeous, mm. gorgeous. Anyway, I digress. Yes, then um, the he went to the West Indies in 1930. Um, a lot of for the first first rate players were resting for the following ashes following summer's ashes so it was a bit of a kind of mix and match team uh, uh, very much an mcc where we can roll over the west indies anyway even with a uh, with only a first a few first teamers and and then some some old crocs mm. um and um yeah Wilf, wilfred uh he took a fair few wickets. He got George Headley out, which isn't a, a, mm. a bad, bad, um, a bad uh, notch. Mm. And um, he bowled more than anybody else, even though he was fifty-two by this time. He bowled more overs than anybody else on the tour. Um, the, I think the the bit I love most about it: the West Indies were selecting a team to tour Australia the following Australian summer. And um, they asked they they asked for Wilfred's advice on all the players he'd seen, um, who they should take to Australia, mm. which I think is a um, says something about what they thought about him. Um, an educated cricketer in the world, and he'd played against all the West Indians that 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 um, on that tour, and they wanted to know what he thought. Cricket history is a beautiful mix of storytelling and statistics or numbers. So let's have a look at uh, Wilfred's statistics through his career. And of course, I mean, we've touched on them already, but there's quite a few numbers to go through. So um, as we've mentioned, he started his test career in 1899, uh, which was the first Ashes test at Nottingham, which uh, turned out to be, no one knew at the time, but turned out to be W.G. Grace's final test. And there's a Mm-hmm. There's a beautiful team photo uh, during that match with, of course, Grace front and centre or in the middle and young Wilfred yeah. sitting at his feet. Um, and he plays right through until 1930. He plays his final test against the West Indies in Kingston. Uh, first class career ends with that match. It began in 1898. Um, when we look at his batting, and this is where the numbers get really interesting, uh, so we'll look at his batting numbers first. He played 58 tests, um, batted 98 times, scored 2,325 runs. His highest score was 179, which was uh, part of that huge partnership with Jack Hobbs in Melbourne in 1912. Mm-hmm. Um, has a batting average of 30.19, two centuries to his name, and... 1150s uh his first class batting record so there's that famous number 1110 matches um you mentioned at the top of the podcast that he uh fronted up 1534 times which i think is a record um yeah and he scored 39,969 runs so just short of 40,000 highest score of 267 not out. His batting average is remarkably similar in test and first class. So his first class batting average is 30.81 and he scored 58 first class centuries. 
certainly nothing to sneeze at and 197 fifties. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously with Wilfred, we have to talk about the bowling as well. Uh, and this is where the numbers are quite staggering. So um, 4,204 wickets, he bowled 185,742 deliveries and gave away 70,322 runs. Um, best first class bowling figures, uh, nine for 24. Uh, that <laughs> itself is remarkable. In test cricket, best bowling figures were eight for 68 and for a match, 15 for 124. Um, in Let's see, in first class cricket, he took five wickets 287 times. And <laughs> I mean, they're just numbers we don't see today. And uh, he took 10 wickets matches and 68 occasions. I've written down just some of the more remarkable feats. So um, we've mentioned the big numbers, of course, but uh, 23 times he took 100 wickets in a first class season, which is a record. Uh, 16 times. You mentioned this earlier, he did the double, which is 100 wickets or more in a season and 1,000 runs as a batsman in a single season. Um, He did that 16 times. George Hurst is next with 14. Um, These numbers are just so, I think, to a modern listener, are just incomprehensible. Um, As much as these uh, figures are now what we think are uh, concrete, they're not always the same is that right uh patrick there's some conjecture relating to the number of first class matches and wickets that he took Mm. um i think i think those numbers you've quoted are now set in stone but that that does lead me into i i always grew up um which makes me rather a sad child at the age of nine being um, very well aware of uh, of Wilfred Rhodes taking four thousand one hundred eighty seven wickets in first class cricket, hmm. and this, I, like lots of kids, this kind of number was imprinted on my brain, same as three hundred sixty five was imprinted on my brain. You'll know if if you grew up in the you didn't, but I did. If you grew up in the seventies, hmm. three hundred sixty five had a certain redolence. Um, 99 point whatever it was for Bradman 99.6 or yeah Mm -hmm. um but Wilfred's was 4187 for the wickets um now somewhere in the 1990s there were various discussions about a couple of games that he played in India he went to India four times in various winters as uh, a paid employee of the Maharaja of Patiala um as a coach and player and um a couple of games in India had been credited to his record, but a couple hadn't. And various luminaries of statistics looked into these games. And in fact, two of the games that hadn't been credited to him um, were actually first-class games. And um, so um, 17 wickets were added to his um, already staggering totals. Um, so he went up from 4,187 to 4,204. And... I, I mean, I have to say, it just made me laugh because I just thought, good old Wilfred, he's <laughs> he's taking wickets even after he's died. Yeah. I mean, that, that, that that's good going. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. He's, um, 
His best bowling figures, as I mentioned, 15 for 124 for the match and 8 for 68 for an innings actually occurred in the same match, as you would expect. Uh, the, the second test match of the 1903-04 tour yeah. at the Melbourne Cricket Ground. Uh, what can you tell us about this match? Oh, you're, you're really lead, leading me on here. Well, I, could, I could tell you more than you want to know about that match, but, um, but thank you anyway for, for leading me into... I think, I think if you um, if you're interested in Wilfred, but you want a kind of very very digested um, account of his career, very digested that you could boil down to two matches, I think you could look at the um, first two tests of that tour, the 1903-04 tour, and I hope I'm getting them the right way round. Um, the the one you've referred to there, where he got the was it fifteen wickets, I think you said. Um, yeah. That was played on a very wet wicket, um, and yeah, I mean, obviously he got. You can tell by the figures he skittled Australia twice, pretty much single handedly. But it it was it was a perfect wicket for him. Um, Wilfred himself thought he didn't bowl particularly well. But actually, he did point out, and and I and it's been um, backed up by a number of other accounts. There were an astonishing amount of drop catches in that game. Um, I think somebody counted it as twelve easy catches were dropped, wow. let alone difficult ones, um, of which eight were off his bowling. Wow! Um, so goodness only knows what his figures would have been. Uh, I think War- Pelham Warner tried to figure out why everybody was dropping catches and he, and he couldn't he talked about the tree line around the ground um or maybe something mm. um so his figures would have been considerably better if everybody caught their catches but his yeah his figures were pretty good and he totally rolled over um australia twice under perfect conditions but if you go back to the match before um which was played on a perfect wicket. Um, the te- the first test match of the series, which was also um, Wilfred's first test match in Australia, mm-hmm. following all the dire predictions about how, how much he'd struggle. Um, the second test match, the one I'd referred to there, where he got the 15 wickets, that was at Melbourne. The first test was at Sydney. Now, the Sydney test was played on an absolutely perfect wicket. Um, Wilfred's figures in the second innings were five for 94 in an Australian total of 485. Now, Wilfred considered that to be his best bowling performance, probably of his whole career. Wow. He said it was the most, absolutely the most perfect pitch. Um, the fact that Australia scored 485 and Wilfred got five for 94 is a fair indication. He bowled 40 overs. 48 ball overs, they would have been. Um, and then there's the famous story, which I I think is actually true. Um, I think I've got it from two or three sources, that Victor Trumper, um, who scored 185 on this on this wicket, Victor Trumper actually just called down to the pitch, can't you just give me a moment's peace, Wilfred? <laughs> Sorry, I can't do the accent. <laughs> um, uh, Trumper was just belting every other bowler around the ground Mm. and he just couldn't belt Wilfred um and Wilfred felt all the time that he could get Trumper out he didn't in the end 
but he kept him quiet and he got five for 94 and um, England went on to win the game Hmm. um, by five wickets. Um, Pretty much, again, his contribution to that victory was pretty much as as important as his contribution to the other one where he got 15 Hmm. wickets because if he hadn't got the 15, probably Braun or whoever else would have have done it anyway. Um, England were very lucky with them when the rain fell in that game. I think it's the, the, the first game, really, his first test on an Australian pitch um, where he proved to be the most economical and the most threatening bowler. And he was a left-arm spinner. And even Victor Trumper, in absolutely prime form, couldn't hit him around. Um, I think that's probably all you need to say. <laughs> now... After stepping down from Test cricket in 1930 at the grand age of 52, how did Wilfred spend his retirement? Well, the short answer to that is he didn't retire first. Um, He was offered a position at Harrow School, um, which has a curious kind of um, symmetry to it because George Hurst was the uh, coach at Eton. Um, So he went to Harrow School as coach, I think it's safe to say if there's anything that didn't work in Wilfred's life, it was his seven years at Harrow. Um, Why didn't it work? Um, Wilfred, I think it's safe to say, was a wonderful coach as long as you really wanted to learn and you were serious about your cricket. Um, He was an enormous help to any number of Yorkshire players. The obvious ones are Roy Kilner and Hedley Verity. But also every every player he came in touch with really said, Wilfred pointed this out, pointed that out, help me with this, help me with that. Um, whether they were batsmen, fast bowlers, spin bowlers, whatever. Um, but at Harrow, he found himself teaching children or young adults of 16, 17, who really just wanted to batter the ball around. I think a lot of mm. them... Um, didn't really understand what he was saying because he had this gruff Yorkshire accent. They weren't really interested in um, going through drills and and being being. They just wanted to jump down the wicket and hit balls for six. And um, yes. I think Wilfred found it all a bit tiresome. Um, but he got paid pretty well for it for doing two and a half three months work every summer term. And if they didn't learn anything from him, his attitude was, well, so what? I'm still getting paid. Um, you know, yeah. they'll go on and be successful lawyers or whatever. They're not going to be county cricketers. Um, and I'm being well paid for this. And this is um, this is sorting me out for the whole year in three months. And eventually the, I mean, he was, he was there for six, seven years. Um and eventually there was a parting of ways. I I think he made his feelings known um, to various members of the staff. Um, George Hurst's at Eton was very different because George was joyful, fun. Um, the kids loved him. Um, it's, a, it's an indication of their different characters. Um, and then once he'd finished at Harrow in 37... Um, that was his retirement. And by then, eye problems had um, emerged and um, his his eyesight did deteriorate um, over, over the next decade and a half. 
You spoke earlier about Wilfred's bowling and batting exploits, both of which existed independently of one another. Was Wilfred an all-rounder or was he a bowler, then a batsman, and then a bowler again? Um, that's a good one. Um, I would say, I would say for the first three or four years of his career, he was a bowler who could bat a bit. He then became a bowling all-rounder for a few years. Then he became a batting all-rounder. Then he became just a batsman, pretty much, before the first ball for two or three years. Uh, Just Mm -hmm. a batsman who could just bowl a bit. Um, And then when he came back, um, he was really... um, Maybe for a few years he was a bowling all-rounder and then he became a bowler who could bat a bit. Um, So... In answer to that, yeah, I I don't think really uh, the statistics might show it slightly different. I I think maybe there was a couple of years around about 1905, 1906, seven. You could say he was a genuine all rounder. It's you'd have you'd have said he was a slightly better bowler, but um, not by a huge degree. Um, and I think. I think that's true, possibly, of quite a lot of players who one perceives as all-rounders. But then when you look at their records, you realise that actually their careers don't quite bear that out. Now, I'm not including, obviously, Gary Sobers. Or, <laughs> um, I, I, I remember looking at Mike Proctor's record in England, and it was very noticeable. The seasons where he got a lot of wickets, he didn't get many runs. And the season where he got a lot of runs, he didn't get many wickets. Hmm. Um but Mike Proctor is always perceived, perceived as an all-rounder and in many senses was in terms of his career. Um, I think it, it's pretty tough to pull off both at the, at the same level in, in the same season or in the same test series. Um, Wilfred will always be remembered mostly for his bowling though. Um, so I suppose over his entire career, you'd say he was a he was a bowling all-rounder. He lived to the grand old age of 95, dying in 1973, his blindness crippling his ability to watch his beloved cricket in the last few decades of his life. But he loved the game until the end, didn't he? He did indeed. Um, he he went to cricket right up to, um, I think his last game was a one-day game involving Hampshire, which he watched with David Frith. Um, he 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 was at nearly all the Test matches in the um, in the sixties. Um, he, he as far as his eyesight was concerned, um, he basically lost all sight in the in the early. Oh, I'll try and get this right. Frank Worrell in the early sixties, his his eyesight completely went, but. Certainly, once his eyesight was gone, that didn't stop him going to cricket because he loved to go to grounds. Um, people would say hello. Um, he would sit there with George Hurst. I mean, I've said they weren't weren't great mates, but they spent a fair bit of time together. Um, and he loved the atmosphere of it. Um, he tended to enjoy going most with um, either his daughter or his granddaughter, who would describe passages of play to him and he could ask questions about um, about um, what was going on. But he could follow a fair bit 
um, just by, I, I think possibly it's been slightly romanticised about how much he could follow of the game going on just by the sound of the bat on the ball or yeah. fielders yeah. running. Um, I, I, I think that's been slightly overdone, but it is a wonderful story. But but there is there is one um, which is true, which I got from, um, I can't remember who I got it from. Um, he was watching a West Indies test um, and... Frank Worrell had been batting all day, I think, on the first day and scored 150, 160 not out or something. And um, on the second day, Worrell resumed his innings and um, he was out after about 15 minutes. And Wilfred just turned to his neighbour, I can't remember who it was, and said, I'm not surprised. I could I could tell he wasn't timing it properly. <laughs> and, really? and that I do believe. And yeah. so that is an idea. When I say it's been slightly over romanticized that he knew everything that was going on with it, without his eyesight. But that one about Frank Worrell, I I thought was, yeah, and it is true. It's not apocryphal. And uh, that's an indication of what he could and couldn't follow. And he, he always wanted to know about fielding positions. Hmm. Um, and he would have his own, what, why has he got a man on the boundary, uh, uh, the the um the point boundary why is that spinner got a man on the point boundary i mean is he is he does he know he's going to bowl short well if he knows he's going to bowl short he shouldn't be bowling yeah um yeah and he got his he got his when he was um in his very later years he he was living with his uh, daughter and son-in-law in um south of england bournemouth and he'd have his yorkshire post delivered a day late um, and all the cricket reports, they would read the cricket reports to him. He would listen to the commentaries on the radio, um, commentaries of test matches on the radio. Um, and also, I mean, I'm putting in um, things that Margaret, um, his granddaughter, told me at the time. He still busied himself around the house. Um, there were certain jobs he could do um, that didn't require his eyesight. Um, vacuuming the stairs was one of them. Um, rolling, rolling newspaper up into tight, tight little balls for lighting the fire. Um, he, he would like doing that. He did the washing up. I don't, I don't know how well he did the washing up if he was blind, but he would insist on doing it. Um, and, um, he would be out in the garden doing certain things. He was, Yeah. He was an active man. He wanted to be helpful. Um, he didn't ruminate enormously on the past. Um, he was always interested in what was going on in terms of the of, of now, um, not just in terms of cricket by any means. Um, Margaret said to me that her only real regret about those last years that was that she and her brother didn't ask Wilfred more about the past and didn't you had to prod him to get him to talk about himself or the past. He he was more more keen on talking about the present. He was a he was a he was a real uh, technophile. He loved new inventions. He he insisted on getting one of the first um, um, tumble dryers, and he um, he was he was right up to date with any new invention, and he wanted to know all about them and and. If he, if he could afford it, get one for the family. And um, mm. it, I, I think those 
those little snippets that Margaret gave me were absolutely crucial in in understanding what kind of man he was and what drove him and and what put you know in modern parlance what pushed his buttons um and i'm hugely grateful to margaret for all the time and and help she's she gave me and has given me um it really did me make that was the 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 that was the icing on the cake really i pretty much finished the book when i first managed to um, get in contact with her um, and that was the icing on the cake I thought no now now I really have written the definitive biography with with her and with David Frith um, the, 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 those two made me feel that yeah that, that's that's mm. the job completed and finally Patrick this is a question I ask all my guests of their subject what do you think Wilfred would have thought about the modern game well, what aspects of the modern game? <laughs> um, I, goodness me, I, how much am I throwing my own my own perceptions of, perceptions onto it? I don't think he'd have thought a great deal about T Twenty, um, but I I do think that he would have he would have rubbed his hands and thought, goodness me, look at all that money. <laughs> um, I, th- I think he'd I think he'd have been pretty good at it. Um, not because of the kind of player he was, but because of his adaptability. Um, and he would have, I'm going to say it again, he would have puzzled it out and made himself a good T20 player or a good ODI player. And he would have certainly approved of um, of cricketers earning um, handsome wages. Um of course, I think uh, in in terms of English cricket, he would have been very sad about the county championship and the way it's been culled to the degree it has. Um, it's it's a really hard one, isn't it? But I I think I think he would have coped with it a lot better than a lot of cricketers of that age because he was adaptable, because he was forward looking, and. Um, yeah, for those two reasons, really. Um, it's hard to say, and I'm sure all your other guests would say much the same, but that, that that's my answer to that one. Well, Patrick, thank you for joining me to discuss the life and times of Wilfred Rhodes, your biography from 2021, Wilfred Rhodes, The Triumphal Arch, is highly recommended. I really enjoyed it. I know you've written on other matters relating to the golden age of cricket, so... Perhaps we could have a chat again sometime soon. Absolutely, this this has been an enormous pleasure. It's it's probably gone on loads more than um, you thought it would. But I did tell you I like Anatta and and uh, and uh, Wil, Wil, Wilfred is is one of my favourite subjects. I should I should just say that all through the book I've called him Rhodes because I decided at the start if I call him Wilfred, there's the danger of it just turning into a kind of of, of uh, praying at the altar of the great Wilfred. And I've really, really tried not to do that. Um, I have tried to look at him in a warts and all kind of way. Um, I didn't find many warts, I must say. <laughs> no, you've done an excellent job. Like I said, I can't recommend it highly enough. Um, that's all for today's episode. Thanks for listening. Remember to favorite or subscribe to the podcast so you'll never miss an episode. 
My name is Tom Ford. Until next time, it's bye for now.